Acts chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. The title is, Something is Missing. This passage we're going to look at this morning, it's a controversial passage. It's a passage that good, godly brothers and sisters in Christ divide over as to what it, what were the people we're going to talk about, were they believers, and what should we expect the Spirit of God to be doing in our life. So we'll talk a little bit about the controversy. We'll talk a little bit about the two sides. I definitely don't want to spend most of my time there. Um, if you have any further questions, you can reach out to me, and I'll be glad to try and maybe answer any of those more specific questions. But it comes down to this idea of how do we treat the book of Acts in, in many ways. Many people will look at the book of Acts and they'll say, the book of Acts, a record of the history of the church, it is something that is... Um, descriptive. It tells us what happened in the early days of the church. Descriptive. But it's not prescriptive, they'll say. That that is something that is, um, you know, uh, not to be taken. We don't read the book of Acts and hear it, see what they did and say, that's what we need to do. As a matter of fact, one author put it this way, quite obviously, the transitional book of Acts is not to be used as a doctrinal source on how to receive the Holy Spirit. Why does somebody say that? Because they don't believe that there's a ministry of the Spirit after salvation like we read here in Acts chapter 19. So if you, if you accept this as being instructive on doctrine, then you've got a conflict with your system. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I would submit to you that taking a descriptive view of the book of Acts leaves the man of God not thoroughly equipped. Because we're missing out on some important pieces of instruction on how the church is to function. Oh, I know that they believe in this Holy Spirit, and I know they love the church, and I know they believe in evangelism, but nonetheless, I believe that theological bias has put the church in an unnecessarily compromised state. So we're going to consider this. So let's read, first of all, the text and, and then come back. Verses 1 through 7 is short. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Listen, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and what? Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard about that. They hadn't had that baptism. Um, they only had the baptism of repentance. And so, verse 6, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. Who are these men? Well, we believe that they're disciples of John the Baptist, that they were followers of him. Just like Apollos, if you back up into chapter 18, you can see that Apollos um, was also um, this kind of, a uh, man who loved the Lord, but he seemed to have only been aware of some things of the faith, not all things. And Priscilla and Aquila gave them further instruction. Now Paul's doing that. 
Paul's giving instruction. Why is he doing that? Because something is missing. He's, he's just spent time with them, and after having some time, he's like, wait a minute here. Something's missing. We, we need to talk about this. So the question is, are these believers? Now, some will say yes, and some will say no. I, I would say yes, they're believers. Why do I say that? <laughs> because Paul says, Luke records that they were disciples, and he says they were believers. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Believed in what? Believed in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is the cornerstone of what we believe in. And that is the question. Now, some will say these are not believers. Um, what we read here at the end of verse 1, it says, and finding some disciples. And they key in on the word some, not the disciples. In the Greek, the article, the word the, is not there. And so it's just some disciples. And everywhere in the book of Acts, um, and, and I think in the, uh, Luke as well, everywhere where you find disciples, the article is included. So the absence of the article, absence of the word the, is an indication that these were not true believers. You can't come to that conclusion on that point alone. You can maybe put that into your arsenal of arguments, but that is not conclusive. And one of the reasons it's not conclusive is because Luke also calls uh, the disciples of John the disciples in, in, in Luke. As a matter of fact, there's a few places in Luke. Luke 5.33, Luke 7, 18 and 19. He refers to John's disciples with the article. So you cannot draw a conclusive argument from the Greek here that because it says some disciples, it's tipping his hand to say not the disciples. It's just some disciples. disciples. But that's not what he does in other places. So that argument kind of uh, begins to fall apart. But the, the one argument I think that is the most notable for why these are not believers, I don't agree with it in the end, is because they argue you can't be a believer or a disciple of Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit. The question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? That's a, that's a question that no, there's only one answer. I'm not saved. No, I didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Um, because I have not believed. That's the only way you can understand that passage. But that's not entirely true. See, there's a ministry of the Spirit of God that happens. Actually, we can even back up a little bit. Before you got saved, you were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and was pointing out that you were not right, you were far from God, and you needed to come. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict the world, right? But then, once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a temple of God, the Spirit came to indwell us. And He regenerated us. He brought us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us over to the kingdom of light. We're born again. But there's another ministry. And it's that ministry that I believe Paul is asking about. He's not saying, were you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? He's saying, were you empowered by the Holy Spirit? Now, obviously, that's an interpretive statement, but that's what I believe he is asking them. And there is precedence in Scripture for that very view. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 14. And this is when the Samaritans put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, again, the man who said the book of Acts is transitional would make the same exact argument for Acts chapter 8 that he makes for Acts chapter 19. You can't use that because this is a transitional book. Says who? You? That's not enough. 
There's nothing in the text, nothing in the text anywhere that says this book is transitional just in for information. You know, that's not FYI, book of Acts. It's this is a model. And that's what, what I believe firmly. But look at it with me in Acts chapter 8, beginning there. I'm in John. It'll work better if I get to Acts. In Acts chapter 8, looking at verse 14, and these had just put their faith and trust in Jesus. They've been water baptized. Let's read. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they were believers, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? They believed, but they had not received a full experience of the Spirit coming upon them. And we'll talk more about the, that preposition, upon. It becomes pretty significant in Luke's writing, both in the Gospel and in the book of Acts. So to say that a person cannot be saved without having um, the Holy Spirit being upon them is just not true. Because in Acts, it is clear as it can be. They believed, they were water baptized, but the Spirit had not come upon them like it had come upon the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter and John go down there. The Spirit is poured out. It becomes obvious these truly are believers. You've got to welcome them into the fellowship and into the family of God. Similar thing happens in Acts chapter 10. So this idea that you can't that the question um, uh, could only mean that they were not saved because all believers have received the Spirit, fails to understand that there are different ministries of the Holy Spirit. He's convicting you when you're in the world, right? He's with you, convicting you. He comes in you, but He also comes upon you. Those three different prepositions give us an indication of the ministry. Now, I believe that these men were believers. (laughs) Uh, Why? Well, because they're called disciples, because Luke says that they were asked, when you were, became you know, saved, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? What kind of believers are we talking about? There's only one kind of believer. There's only one kind of, uh, of disciple that is in focus in the New Testament, and that is followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Even the language is there's a again I wouldn't build my whole argument on this point but the language in Luke chapter 19 verse 4 is very similar to the language that John uses when he prophesies about the Holy Spirit coming upon people so in Luke 19:4 Paul said John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him now listen to the prophecy of John in Luke 3:16 John answers, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. So it's like Paul saying, listen, what about what John said, that he's coming after him? And you know what he said, that there's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they're like, yeah, we we didn't get that part. We, We don't know about that. We know about Jesus as the Messiah. We're disciples. We're believers. But we don't know about that Holy Spirit that you're talking about. Now, some would say, see, 
They don't know about the Holy Spirit. There's no way you could have been a believer in the first century world and not known about the power of the Holy Spirit. And they'll appeal to, um, I believe it's like Acts 11 or something like that. Acts 11, 17. But wait a minute here. Just think about this. How many Christians today are able to talk to you about the Lord, about Jesus, about his ministry, about their salvation. You're able to preach the gospel to people. But if you want to begin to inquire of them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they're going to say, ah, yeah, I'm not so good on that part. I'm better at the second person of the Godhead than the third person. I know more about him than I do. I know more about the first and second. The third person, I know less. I think there's a lot of believers that would fall into that category. So, the question, though, is a very strange question to ask if, John doesn't, if Paul doesn't think that these guys are saved. If you are talking to somebody and you're wanting to witness to them, and you are like talking and you're like, hey, they clearly are not saved. Is your question to them, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That's not, you don't ask that question. That's not the question you're talking about. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you a believer? Well, the text has already dealt with the fact that they are believers. So now Paul's like, wait, they're believers? But there's a missing dynamic in these 12 men. And that missing dynamic was the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, the other reason I think that these guys were believers and it had to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming upon them in power is because that's what we read. We read, and, not, and then they got saved, and then they put their faith and trust in the Lord. We don't read anything like what we read in, in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 8, verse 6, it says, And the multitudes with one accord hated the things spoken by Philip. He was preaching the gospel. That's not going on here in Acts chapter 19. There's no commentary about their salvation. There's no statement that they put their trust in the Lord. The statement is only about the fact that they have not been baptized in the name of the Lord and they have not been filled with the Holy Spirit. The experience that they have here is very similar to the Acts chapter 8 that we just read about, but it's also very similar to the Acts chapter 2. You have a group of believers that are gathered together in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. They're followers of Jesus Christ. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they are endued with power on high, and then go out and be missionaries. These are saved people. And as they're waiting there, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they have a very similar experience to what happens in Acts chapter 19. You can read in Acts chapter 10, very similar experience. The Gentiles are hearing the gospel preached, but this time they are saved, and they are filled with the Spirit all in the same moment which means you can't write out a formula for how God's going to do this. There are times when God saves a person and they are filled with the Spirit at that very moment. And there are times, like in Acts 8 or in Acts 19, where people believe and they are later filled with the Spirit. So this puts us in this place of saying, have you received the Spirit since you believed, when you believed? Not are you and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Not, is your name written in the book of life? But is there a dynamic of power upon your life to do what God has called you to do? Listen, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He goes, I don't know how to describe what being anointed is, but I know when somebody is, and I know when somebody isn't. 
And I think all of us can say that about ourselves. I know when I'm ministering and the Spirit of God is upon me, and I know when it's just Troy Warner. And you can tell. I mean, you can, you, maybe you couldn't tell. Maybe you could. But we all are aware. It's like, wait a minute, that's just me. You feel a frustration. You feel an irritation. You feel a grind. You're pushing. You're trying to make it happen. And you get to the end of it, and you're just like, man, there's got to be more to what's going on here than just simply going through the motions like this. Again, I've already kind of given this point away a little bit, but the Holy Spirit also comes upon believers. Luke 24, 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. It's this coming upon experience that Paul's talking about and is closely followed through the book of Acts. Read Acts 1.8. Read Acts 8.16. Read Acts 10.44. And we just read Acts 9.16. All of these passages use the preposition upon to describe the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that John said was coming. There's one that's coming after me that's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so Paul says to the disciples of John, do you have the Holy Spirit? We don't know about that. You don't know about that. Well, let me, let me baptize you, and then let me pray for you to receive it. And then they receive this. But these are the examples that we see of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. In verses 5 through 7 of Acts 19, we see the manifestation of the Spirit's ministry as He comes upon them. They lay hands on them, Verse 6, and then they speak with tongues and they prophesy. This is what happens. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 as well. That's what happens in Acts chapter 10 as well. In Acts chapter 8, which we just read, we don't know what happened to them. We don't know what that manifestation was that happened. But there was something that took place because Simon the magician, when he saw that the hands of John and um, uh, Peter were laid upon people, and that they, they began to have some manifestation. He says, I want that. As a magician, that's a very cool trick. And magicians buy tricks from each other. And Peter gives them a terrible rebuke. I mean, he just says, get out of here. What is wrong with you? Your heart is perverted. You want to buy this stuff? Absolutely not. And so... We see, though, in all the accounts where the Spirit of God comes upon, that Greek preposition, a P, comes upon them, there is some outward experience. Paul seems to think that a believer, when asked, would be able to identify the experience of this Spirit coming upon them. Now listen, Paul had a, a very dramatic salvation experience, didn't he? He was blinded. Heard the voice from heaven. He was knocked off the horse. And then he says, you know, who are you? Well, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he becomes a follower of the Lord. Later he's filled with the Spirit and his eyes are healed. So that's a pretty amazing experience. And there's many we could read of. But you know, a lot of us did not have an amazing salvation experience. Salvation is amazing. But the testimony that I have of my salvation experience, nobody's going to write a book about it, except my mom and dad, right? Because I was a little boy, 
raised in a Christian home, and it was Revival Week. How many of you remember Revival Week at your church? Remember those? And so we were there every night for Revival Week, and I was always wanting to go up front and to put my faith and trust in the Lord and make a public profession, but I was so young, my parents were like, well, you just wait. So they would tell me just to say, I think every service I said, can I go forward? They're like, no, no, just, just wait. So Revival Week, we were there so much, I got to sit with, you know, apart from my parents. And so as they, I don't really remember it very well, but they tell me that as I started walking forward, I kind of turned around and looked at them and smiled at them like, I got away. I'm going to the altar, and I, and I, I put my faith and trust in the Lord. But I, but I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't a murderer. I, I, I wasn't like this terrible thief that had done harm to people. I was a six-year-old boy. I believe Jesus was, was Lord and Savior, and I put my faith and trust in him and had the very amazing result of salvation. But that I, I can't tell you anything notable about that night other than I put my faith and trust in the Lord. And I would imagine a lot of us have a salvation experience that sounds something like that. Some of you have a dramatic salvation experience. And we love to hear those. But the most amazing testimony that a parent wants to hear is that boring testimony of, I was a little boy or girl and I got saved and I'm still following Jesus. That's what parents want to hear their kids talk about. They don't want all that other stuff. I mean, if that stuff's going on, then they want to hear the salvation. But they don't want to see it happen. But this experience of the Spirit coming upon, evidently, this is something you can identify. If anybody wants to really dive into this topic more, I would encourage you to read this book. It's called Joy Unspeakable. You're probably going to have to get it on Amazon because I think it's out of print. So you have to find it an old copy. But it's called Joy Unspeakable by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if this is a, a question for you, great book. Isn't it interesting that the two gifts that are mentioned here and other places are the two gifts that are most often said to not be functioning today? Look at this, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 39 and 40. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. If you're going to come to the conclusion that these gifts are not for today, you better have a clearer verse than this. Because this verse is pretty clear. It's a commandment. You should earnestly, you should not have like a little bit of a desire for the gift of prophecy. You should earnestly, deep within you, want to be able to speak words of comfort and edification and exhortation to men. You should want to be able to be a mouthpiece of the voice of the Lord to people. And you should not forbid people to speak with tongues. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, do not despise prophecies. Do not, does anybody know what it says? Quench the Spirit. What's the connection? If you're despising prophecies, you're what? You're quenching the Spirit. And so I think this is an important side conversation for us to, to at least bring up. And you can have it later. You can have it over lunch. But that's a very clear statement. I challenge you to come up with a statement that says these gifts are not for today. <laughs> it's really interesting because 1 Corinthians 12, remember when he's talking about all the different body parts and you need the hand, you need the foot, you need the eye, you need the mouth. And that, you know, you, the hand wouldn't say to the foot, I have no need of you. What, what is the, what's the illustration for? What's he talking about? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. That we all need each other. And yet, here we are 
And often we're saying, ah, we don't need you prophecy, and we don't need you word of knowledge, and we don't need you tongues. And yet, 1 Corinthians 12 starts and opens up with saying, don't say you don't need a person with that gifting. It's a, it's a, it's a strong point. So what keeps us back from experiencing well, in Acts chapter, uh, experiencing the fullness of the Spirit, what happened in Acts chapter 19 was they were unaware, right? They just didn't know. They needed to be instructed that there was a ministry of the Holy Spirit that they could have as believers and as disciples. So maybe that's you, but it's not you anymore. Because now you know that there's a ministry and a dynamic you can pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you with. But here's one that I hear probably more than anything else. People are afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen when the Spirit of God comes upon my life. I don't want to speak in tongues. I don't want to prophesy. I don't want to be doing things I don't understand. I don't want to. I've seen so many abuses. Oh, there's abuses out there. But isn't it true? Isn't the statement true? Everything that we hold dear and precious to us and the Christian faith has already been abused. Has the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God ever been abused? Has the, has the sharing of the gospel ever been merchandised and, and abused? Yes, but we're still preaching the Word and we're still evangelizing. Have people ever abused the idea of giving a tithe and offering to the Lord? Yes, but you're never going to hear a pastor say, we're not going to have that anymore. You know, Giving is done away with because that gift has been abused. No, that's not going to happen. Everything that we hold dear and precious to us in the Christian faith has been abused by somebody at some point in time. So the answer is not give up on it. It's to reclaim it in this biblical, proper order. That's what we need to do. And yeah, people have abused the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People have abused the gift of tongues. People have abused prophecy. I got it. I I know. I mean, I asked... (laughs) I asked my coach one time at a Christian school, I said, hey, you know, how do you speak in tongues? He goes, well, I'm not really sure. I think you just kind of make up a word, and then you kind of learn that word real well, and you keep making up more and more words. I'm like, yeah, that ain't it. And he goes, yeah, I know. That's what I was told, though. That's what he said. He goes, but that's what I was told. I'm like, that's not it. He goes, yeah, I know. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of weird things that happen. But there's something legitimate and true and genuine. Most of the reasons why people give for why they don't want to experience the Lord today, would have opted out in the first century as well. They would have opted out of Acts chapter 2, because I don't understand it. And I don't know about that little flame fire thing above my head. I don't know that I want that. I don't know that. I've never seen that before. And I don't want to speak in a language I've never learned. My mind can't understand that. And there's fear. There's fear of what people are going to say about you if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. What did they say in Acts chapter 2 when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? You're drunk. This is what they said. You are drunk. You're out of your mind. Which to me is one of the craziest um, insults you could give. Wait a minute. You're saying I am drunk because I'm speaking a foreign language I've never learned? Yeah. People don't become more coherent when they get drunk. They become less coherent. And they certainly don't begin to speak with languages they, they've never learned. But this is what's going to happen. I'm afraid of being associated with a group of people. I'm afraid what's going to happen. Well, listen. 
You want to know what's going to happen to you when you're filled with the Spirit? Look at the life of Jesus. At his baptism, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a what? A dove. This is, it wasn't a, a vulture or a hawk that was swooping down from heaven that was going to attack him. It wasn't a peacock that was going to strut around with pride. It was a gentle, pure dove that came upon him. And then we see what he did. We talked about this in our study on Wednesday night. What happened in the life of Jesus is what you can expect when the Spirit comes upon you. So fear, it's a big one. Well, I just want to understand it. Listen, you're not going to understand everything. You're going to have to take some things, a lot of things, by faith. We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We have the Word of God to teach us and instruct us. The Holy Spirit is not going to do anything in your life that Jesus does not want done in your life. Jesus said, I am going away, and it's good that I'm going away, because you're going to do greater works. Because when I go away, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to continue to do what I was doing through your life. Do we need this power of the Holy Spirit? We absolutely do. I don't hear this, this one reason for what keeps us back very often, but I think it's very well might be the number one reason why people don't walk in the power of the Spirit. Apathy. Take it or leave it. Yeah, sure. Do you want some French fries? Yeah, okay, give me some fries, okay. How about the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, yeah, if you want it, I'll take the Holy Spirit. And it's just a, it's a take it or leave it mentality. How can we have that kind of mentality? We should be desperate. We should be passionate. We should be uh, this mentality that says, listen, if you don't put your spirit upon me, I'm not moving. I'm not going to teach those third graders anymore unless I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to lead a home fellowship. I'm not going to go evangelize. I'm not going to be a missionary. I'm not going to stand and teach your word unless I am filled with the power of your Holy Spirit. The Lord said that we should seek after him with all of our heart, not part of it. And I think this is the attitude that often say, well, yeah, okay, Lord, if you want to fill me, you can. And if you don't want to, that's fine too. And it's that take it or leave it mentality that I believe is so grieving to the Spirit of God. And I believe actually the Lord has even said, if you don't seek for me after me with all your heart, you're not going to find me. Turn with me into the Old Testament in an account that I believe really illustrates the kind of passion that we should have around the desire to be filled with the Spirit. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. As you're going there, Elijah is about to finish ministry. He's going to have his own personal rapture. Um, he's going to be taken up in a fiery chariot into heaven. And his ministry will come to an end, but he has a disciple named Elisha, and he's going to take up the role of being the prophet to the nation. Everybody knows Elijah is about to be going and going up to heaven, um, and that Elisha is going to take over. And here, that's the kind of the, the story here. Let's read. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. 
Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Verse 4, Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me unto Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that, you will, um, that the Lord will take away um, your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. I mean, he's like, I don't want to hear about it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, clearly you want something from me. You're unwilling to leave. What is it that you want? And he says, what may I do before I'm taken away from before you? Elijah said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, what is the attitude of Elisha here? Is he like, I want to be even more powerful than you? Or is he saying, I'm half the man that you are. The work that you've done as a prophet in this nation If that's now going to be my job, and it was his job, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need twice as much help from God because I'm half the man that you are. And so Elisha knew his calling, that he was going to be the mouthpiece to the nation of Israel. And he's like, I cannot even begin to think about doing ministry without this. Is he passionate? Is he desperate? Oh, he absolutely is. Far from the mentality that says, man, if you want to fill me, fill me, and if you don't, that's fine. No, for Elisha, it's like, I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I mean, you get the impression that if Elijah would have started to go up to heaven and nothing would have happened, that Elisha would have reached out to grab him. He was that desperate for it. And this is the question that I have. Under this idea, what keeps us back? We're unaware, we're fearful, or we're apathetic. Our hands are not on the plow of the work of the kingdom of God. We've got our business. We've got our education. We've got our career. We've got our family. We've got our sports. We've got our hobbies. We've got, you know, our own concerns. We've got the cares of the life, of this life. I don't have time to worry about getting involved. Then you probably don't see the need for the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. But if you thought today that you had to lead the nation, what would it be like? If we were to take all of you, and drop each of you off, two by two, somewhere on the globe, in the most hostile places of, uh, of the world against Christianity, do you think you would be apathetic? Oh, we would, none of us would be apathetic. Our first days would be on our face before God saying, pour out your spirit upon me. I need for the work that I, is before me. If you don't feel me, I'm not going out. As a matter of fact... We've already read this passage, but that is what the Lord said. In Luke 24, 49, he says, Tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. 
Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. Don't venture out. Some of you older people, you'll remember this commercial. Um, American Express had as their slogan. Does anybody remember what it was? Don't leave home without it. And that's what the Lord is saying. Don't leave home base to do mission work without the power of the Holy Spirit. You need it. You must be desperate for it. I don't believe we got to beg God. I don't think we have to prove to God that we are worthy because we weren't worthy of salvation and we aren't worthy of this outpouring of the Spirit. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, in faith, Galatians 3, 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If you're saying, well, I'm not, there's no way the Holy Spirit would fill me because I'm just, I've got too many things that got to get fixed. Listen, you can't earn the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for salvation, and you can't earn the power of the Spirit upon your life. So we come in faith and we come in prayer. Luke 11, 9 through 13 talks about if you ask, the Lord is going to give you the Holy Spirit. It gives the illustration of dads when their sons come and ask for bread or for a fish or for an egg. He's not going to give them a stone, a scorpion, or a snake. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your your Father, give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. Ask believing, but ask desperate for the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life to do this. And, and we need this. Today, in this hour, in our country, in this world, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We are, listen, I believe in the church, and I believe the church will, 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 the gates of hell will not triumph, that we will be victorious. But right now, it doesn't look like the church is winning the day, does it? I know it's hard, to say, it's hard to say that, it's hard to hear that. And I know that the church will be victorious, but right now, it doesn't seem like more people are coming to church and getting saved than are joining some radical group. And we need the power of the Spirit of God to be upon us. Well, we got to preach the gospel, Troy. It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. Absolutely. But God wants not only the message to be His power, He wants His messengers to be Spirit-filled, empowered deliverers of that. Ezekiel 47, there's a, an account where Ezekiel is taken to the temple of, of uh, there in Israel. And there's water that's coming out from underneath the temple. And uh, an angel goes out and begins to measure the water. In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, you see that the measurement is that the water comes up to his ankles. And then in verse 4, it comes up to his knees. At the end of verse 4, it comes up to his waist. And then they measured again in verse 5, and it was so deep that he had to swim. In Luke, uh, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we read about how the Lord, after his resurrection, after his glorification would pour out his spirit and there would be rivers of living water that would come out of believers. There's this, this, the flow of the spirit in a person's life is likened to the flow of water. It's, it's John 37 through 39. And, and I think this is, maybe you've had an experience with the Holy Spirit. And you, you've, you know what it's like, your ankle, your, you know, ankle deep and maybe needy, maybe even waist. Maybe some of you at one time were swimming in the Spirit, I mean, if you will, to use that metaphor, that illustration. You just, you have the Spirit of God upon you. But now here we are in 2020, and all of your stories are old. All of the stories are of what God used to do in your life. 
That's what the Spirit did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Hey, it's worth celebrating what God did 10 or 20 years ago. But we need fresh work of the Spirit of God upon our life. And it's like, well, I'm willing to go ankle deep. But there's these rivers of water that the Lord wants you to be in where you are just, you're, you're caught up in the flow. You, you're having to swim. And what would it look like if the church, if Troy Warner, if you, if us, if we were filled with the Spirit the way we read in the book of Acts? That is what is needed. That, there's no other hope. Now listen, I, we can't control God. We can't manipulate Him. But we must be desperate for Him. I close with this. I was probably 18 or 19 years old, and I was told that that coming Friday night at one of the youth group active, uh, prayer meetings, and I was a counselor in the youth group at that time, um, that they were going to be praying for people to be filled with the Spirit. If you've not been filled with the Spirit, then you need to come, and we're going to pray for you. And I'm like, oh, man. I knew I was called into ministry. I was already teaching Bible studies and doing stuff. But I was like, oh, I, wanna, I definitely want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know that I have. I know that I'm saved and had been saved for some 12, 13 years. I'd witnessed, I'd led people to the Lord, but I knew that there was a, a dynamic that was missing in my life. So I went. As a matter of fact, they didn't tell us to, but I, be, I fasted that week. I was just like, Lord, I want you. I need you. I'm not, I mean, for me to go into ministry and not be filled with your spirit, I don't even want to think about that. And so he came out, and they said, if anybody wants to be prayed for, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, go into this other room in the house. And we went. There was like 100, 100 high schoolers there. I went into the other room. Um, they began, people began to pray for them. And, man, the Spirit of God fell. And people began to um, have a very notable experience with the Holy Spirit, completely biblical. And then they all kind of said, well, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you can leave the room. Well, everybody left but one guy, Me. And then a new group came in, same thing happened. At the end, they all left, and I was still standing there. And I thought about walking out, and I'm like, I'm not going. I'm going to stay. Another group of people came in, and again, the same thing. They prayed for them, and they all, their people were prophesying. They were speaking in tongues. There was just an overwhelming sense of the love and the joy of God in their life. And I'm still standing there, and not a thing has happened to me. Yeah, I was beginning to feel a little self-conscious at that moment, if you can imagine. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Well, you know, maybe I didn't pray, and I began to think all of the works. And I had this sweet sister in the Lord, older, older uh, lady in the Lord came up, and she goes, have you not received the power of the Holy Spirit? I said, well, I don't think so. She goes, oh, you would know. She goes, you know what? Get your eyes off the gifts and get your eyes on the giver of the gift, and let's start worshiping him together. And so we began to worship, and the Spirit came upon me. And, you know, I look back at that and I think, what if I had just walked out of that room after the first or the second or the third time? And I can tell you afterwards, there was a notable difference in my life and in ministry and the gifts that were functioning and flowing in my, in my life. It was, it was very obvious. And I, I'm just here to tell you, I, you know, if you've prayed before and nothing has happened, don't walk out. Go home. Get desperate before God on your face and just begin to worship Him. If there's things that are quenching the Spirit of God in your life, repent of them. But let God do a work in your life. Something is missing, but it doesn't have to be.
Father, we come before you and we are so thankful that you have not only saved us and you've put your spirit within us, you've sealed us, you've written our names in the book of life. We love being saved, Lord. But we see here in this text before us that something can be missing. And Lord, you know the answer. Maybe we don't even know the answer about our own lives. But, I, but you know. And so we come before you like Elisha. We're hungry. We're desperate. We see what's going on. And we don't want to sit on the sidelines anymore. Lord, we want to be, we want to be front and center with what you're doing in this hour, in this nation, in this world at this time. We are the ones. We are the generation of the, of the church that's alive right now. This mess is before us. And you have fully equipped us. You've made us totally ready for this hour. But Lord, not apart from your spirit. Maybe you have received the spirit of God. And you know what it's like to have that happen in your life. But it's been so long since you've walked in the spirit. I mean, the, the waters have receded from you swimming to maybe ankle deep. Maybe. Maybe you just got to... Maybe it's the water is only beneath your feet now. And you're just, you're not seeing the Spirit of God working. Hey, I want to challenge you to stir up those gifts that are within you. How did Elisha know to strike the Jordan River with his mantle? Because he saw older Elijah, full of the Spirit, take the mantle and strike the river. You the older generation, those of you that are familiar with the working of the Spirit, if we don't model it, who's going to know how to use it? Stir it up. Well, it's what used to happen. No, it's what needs to happen now, today, in your life, in your family, wherever you may go. And maybe you're hearing like, oh, I, I, I don't know. I know I'm saved but I want all that the Lord has for me. Well, I'm just going to ask both groups, if you want to be filled afresh or filled again with the Holy Spirit or filled for the very first time and you're passionate for the Lord to be upon your life, wherever you are across this room, I just want you to stand to your feet and say, Lord, fill me. Fill me with your Spirit, Lord. And the prophet Joel said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That was said 2,000 years ago. How much more today are we in the last days? Oh, Lord, we need you. We want you. Lord, we don't want weirdness. We don't want to abuse. We don't want to go outside of what you have, but Lord, we want everything that you do have. We don't want to leave anything on the table. And so we just cry out like Elisha, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, we're not going to depart. Lord, we, we wait for you to fill us. Lord, we come in simple faith. When we came and put our faith and trust in you, you, you brought us into the kingdom. Lord, we come as your children in faith, probably with a lot of questions. But Lord, we believe that what you did then, you can do now. And you are doing now. So Lord, fill us afresh. 
We pray that we would be bold witnesses. We pray that the gifts would flow. We pray that there would be new ministries. We pray, Lord, that you would raise us up in this hour to be a voice of light and truth and love and peace that this current world needs so desperately. Fill us, Lord. Make us ready for this hour. It's in your name we pray. Amen.